0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Going VC Podcast. I'm Rachel.
1: And I'm JJ. And we're the hosts of The Going VC Podcast. And we're really excited to bring you this episode today. As a quick reminder, our goal of this podcast, as always, is to discuss a variety of topics as it relates to accelerating your venture capital career. So Rachel, can you give us a quick rundown on what the listeners can expect today?
0: Thanks, JJ. Our guest today is Julia Kaki, a junior investor at Panoramic Ventures who recently transitioned her career into VC. We cover Julia's origin story, why she believes it's important to recognize what you want to do in life and having fun along the way, how there is no direct path into venture and every experience you have is valuable in some way, and what's more important is being able to recognize those skills and being able to sell yourself. We also chat about why she's bullish on in-person experiences.
1: Yeah, this episode was a ton of fun and filled with a ton of great insights. We hope you all enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us today, Julia. uh, We usually start these episodes just with uh, a little bit about your career background to give the listeners Uh, some context there. Would you be able to give us uh, this sort of two-minute story there? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I went to Duke for my undergrad and studied economics and realized that I wanted to work in business, wasn't entirely sure in what capacity I wanted to work in. I did try out banking for a summer internship, realized that it wasn't necessarily the industry that I wanted to be in. A colleague of mine who, who worked at the bank that I was at connected me with One of his friends, actually, who also went to Duke over at General Motors in Detroit, I interviewed there. I absolutely loved everyone I spoke to. It was so funny. I tell everyone that the interview process was probably the most rigorous process that I'd gone through in terms of recruiting. And yet it was my favorite because it felt like it was really the most thorough. It felt like I was really getting to understand what my role would be as a financial analyst there. And it really gave me a broad understanding of what my job function would be, what life would be like living in Detroit and all of those things. decided to accept my offer at General Motors, did a three-year finance rotational development program there, where the hope is after you graduate that you'll eventually become a finance manager. And I took a different route. I decided to join the business development team in their incubator, where I was working on a SaaS platform Uh, startup where I was helping out with the go-to-market strategy, the marketing, the partnerships, and pricing, and a variety of different things. And it it really helped me realize that I really did like the startup environment and that startups is definitely where I wanted to be and that I wanted to be more on the investing side. I actually found Panoramic through a Going VC email, funny enough, and applied through there and met with the team it was th- another thorough interview process where I got to meet everyone on the team and I really felt like this is a place where I could see myself growing and becoming a full fledged you know, VC analyst, investor, everything like that.
1: Nice. That's awesome. And that's, uh, that's super cool to hear that you found out about them through going to VC email. And I've got to say also interesting that GM was the most rigorous interview process you've ever done. I don't know if I've heard too many people be like, oh yeah, (laughs) those banking interviews, they were easy by comparison.
2: So funny. I remember almost all the questions that I was asking my banking interviews and I felt very well prepared to answer all of them. There weren't too many trick questions. A lot of them were very conversational. And when I got to GM, the first thing they did is they sat us down in a room where we each had our own laptop. And they had us go through a case study for, I think at the time, it was their partnership that they had with Lyft. And I had never seen anything like this during an interview where we were sitting down dead silent in a room of 20 other kids competing for the same job and building out an Excel model and then having to go and present it in front of four or five executives at the company i had never seen that before so compared to the uh, banking interview that was it was definitely a lot more thorough in terms of testing my knowledge and testing how i would actually act on the
1: job that is totally fair and putting you guys all in the same room to do this just feels oh like my an god. outlet <laughs> <Just> <laughs> like oh an my god. element of stress
2: there. like you see someone in the second row who finishes with 10 minutes left to spare and you're like oh my god what am i doing wrong do i need to add more graphics should there be an animation or something how fancy does this formal presentation have to be? It felt very cutthroat. At the end of the day, the actual interview process and actually working at GM was not cutthroat at all. It was just the first hour that I had after breakfast
1: that morning. That makes sense. And actually ties into one of the things that we talked about during our pre-chat was one of the reasons why you chose GM was that sort of living life aspect.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That was definitely one of the things that I realized about myself when I was doing that summer internship in banking is I realized that we spend so much time worrying about where we want to be in 10 years, where we want to be in 20 years, that in the short term, we'll do anything to get to that point in 10 years from now. But that really makes it so that you're not living in the moment, that you're not being able to really enjoy life as it happens. And I realized that when I was working in banking, I was spending so many hours working, getting things done, helping out team members, talking about work, being in the office, commuting to the office, all of these things that it didn't really necessarily matter how much money I may have been making. I didn't actually have any of the time to spend the money. And I realized that I was missing out on so many great opportunities, especially being in a city like New York. This was back in 2016. It was pre-pandemic times. I wanted to be able to go out to Broadway shows, go out to dinner walk on the high line and and do all of these things that New York has to offer. And I just didn't have the time to do it because I found myself physically in the office seven days a week. And that was something that I realized was important to me. And that's a really big thing that I encourage everyone to learn about themselves is find out what's important to you within a career. It may be work-life balance. It may be the people that you're working with. It may be the actual work product that you're putting forward, but find what is important to you and then find jobs that are going to meet those certain criteria. And when I was talking to people at GM, it definitely felt like there was more of a balance between working and having time off. I still remember my first week at GM, I had a project that was due in a couple of weeks and I told my manager, I don't mind working over the weekend. And he said, that's ridiculous. Please don't work on this over the weekend. Like, Just come in Monday ready to go. And and we'll get it done next week. There's no rush on this. And for me, it was this weird shift in my mindset where it was okay to get things done at a more leisurely pace and be able to take time for myself and be able to enjoy myself. Being someone in their early 20s, just starting out in their career, it seems like the perfect opportunity to just grind and work really hard and put in the work that you feel like you have to the grunt work that you have to do really early on in your career but when you're in your early 20s that's such a transformative and shaping time in your life where you're meeting new people you're engaging in you know romantic relationships you're exploring food it's the fastest metabolism you'll ever have you definitely want to go out and try new restaurants (laughs) i feel like if you're spending all of that time working you don't really get to enjoy how fun it is being in your early 20s, getting to go out on a Friday and a Saturday night because you still have the energy to do so because you weren't working such crazy hours during the week. That was something that I really wanted to incorporate and bring with me. And it's something that I've kept with me into my career in venture capital is I want to make sure that I am getting to live my life, that I am getting to travel the world because that's something that's important to me. I'm I'm a huge Duke basketball fan. If there's a game on that night that I'm not working, I'm going to be watching the game. And if there's work that needs to get done, I can log on after, but not feeling like I need to be tied to my desk and give up things that are important to me. And that was one of the really big things in deciding not to go back into banking and then instead to move into corporate
1: finance. I absolutely love that phrase you just had, that it's the fastest metabolism you'll ever have. <laughs> I've never heard someone say that before, but that is fantastic. <laughs> you've, you've got to try all this food in your 20s because it's the fastest metabolism you'll ever have.
2: It's the most energy that you'll have, so you can definitely stay out later with friends. But let me tell you, the older I've gotten, the more I'm like, oh man, I can't have two salads today. <laughs> I can only have one salad for lunch. And I'm talking salads here. I definitely want to take advantage of going out to restaurants and stuff when you're able to digest it and not weigh five pounds more the next day.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that, Julia. Just that lesson of finding what you think is important in your life and making sure that you're enjoying life is so key. And I'm, I'm glad that you found that early in your career. because so People struggle with that throughout their entire careers. Would love to hear a little bit more about your transition from General Motors into Venture and what inspired that particularly from a culture perspective, GM's a hundred year plus old company. There's a couple hundred thousand employees worldwide and obviously venture. You work with a much smaller team and you're working with startups. Would love to hear a little bit more about that from you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I remember when I was deciding what I wanted to do after school. Someone who had graduated from Duke as well, and now was working at General Motors, called me and asked why I hadn't accepted the offer yet. And we started talking, and I remember asking him, are there opportunities to get involved in VC work and deals? And and he said, "Uh, yeah, I know someone who who does private equity stuff. I was like, okay, that's close enough. I think even when I was in college, I knew that I was interested in startups and in venture capital when i started at gm i actually was in their onstar group it was called global connected consumer experiences at the time and my job was really interesting and really unique because i was able to work with these startups out in california and figure out and all across the country i just like to call out california because that's when where most people think the startups are and what i was doing is i was working on ways to integrate them into the services that general motors was already offering and there were a number of different startups that we were working with companies that dealt with fuel and insurance and marketplaces and really thinking about what the, the benefits could be and building out these financial models as to how we could create synergies. And that's really where I realized that VC is something that I could definitely see myself doing because I loved thinking about the potential opportunity if this company and if this venture were to really grow. And I loved thinking about the strategy of how to get from point A to point B. I really enjoyed attending all of the operational meetings where we were talking about the little things that needed to be changed in order to go farther down the product roadmap and thinking about all of the strategic decisions that really need to be made. And That role for me was 100% the nail in the coffin, the straw that broke the camel's back. These are all negative things, but in a positive way, it was what helped me realize that venture capital is really what I wanted to get into. And I continued throughout the program. And once I was finished with the the finance program, I wanted to make sure that I was getting more and better experience on the operational side working with startups. And that's what led me to interview out of finance and into operations so that way I could get my hands in and, and learn what it takes to actually scale and grow a company from just an idea through a minimum viable product, through a full rollout launch. That's definitely what inspired me. And then in terms of actually making the transition, it's funny. GM definitely seems like a massive company because it is. But everyone who works there will tell you that it's such a smaller company than people realize. Uh, It's a big company that feels like a small company because the first team I was on, there were 40 people. And I knew every single one of them by first and last name could easily carry on a conversation with them. The second team I was on, it was the audit team. And That probably was also close to maybe 20 to 30 people. Also knew every single person. Had probably gotten lunch with every single person on the team. And then when I moved into my third role, I was operating with five or six people. And then when I was in the incubator space, it was just me and my manager. It's a big company, but it feels really small. And I think that in terms of moving from a large company to a small company, it wasn't as big of a culture shock as I thought it would be. It's definitely strange that when I go through Teams now, there's five people I can message as opposed to 100,000 people that I can message. That's probably the biggest difference is is seeing the same five names. But in terms of the work, it it feels somewhat similar because I am thinking strategically about how we can add value to these startups, which is very similar to what we were doing at GM. And in terms of the camaraderie, it's very similar where everyone is is super hands-on, everyone really wants to help another person out. Uh, At both companies, I would get messages and emails saying, hey, I see you're going on vacation. Let me know if you need me to cover anything for you. Or I feel just as comfortable reaching out to a coworker and asking them to cover something for me if something comes up or if I have too much on my plate or something like that. That culture is very important to me. And it was definitely something that I was looking for when looking for a new job. Definitely. Yeah.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing how that operating experience at at GM really transferred over into your current role in venture. And it sounds like you had great company culture uh, at your previous role and at at Panoramic now, which is awesome. Since you're pretty new, I I think you've been at your role for a few months now with Panoramic. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe something that has surprised you about working in VC that maybe you didn't expect before?
2: Yeah. It's so interesting. I tell everyone that you can't really understand what a job is until you're actually there doing it. And I think it's so true, especially for BC, understand the big picture. You understand, okay, we have capital to invest. We invested in startups. We want the startups to grow so that we can make a return for our investors. Big picture, it seems very simple, but what's really interesting is all of the strategy behind the scenes. And by strategy, there's so many more things that go into an investment than just really liking the idea. There's things that we have to consider. Is the check size something that we're comfortable writing? Have we already written a check size that big? Does it fit into our current portfolio? Does it have synergies with other products in our portfolio so we could introduce the founders to each other? Is this something that we could see growing to a 5X versus a 10X? If it's only a 2X, maybe it's not the right opportunity for us. Really thinking strategically about all of those little things. Those are things that I didn't realize would be a reality when I came into the role. There haven't been a lot of opportunities like this, but there's been some situations where I've seen a really great deal. It seems really interesting to me, but the round that they're raising is just not going to fit into our current fund or our current portfolio. And it's something where we want to maintain a conversation with them for the next round, or we pass them on to another venture capital firm that we have close relationships with, because there was nothing at all wrong with the company. It just didn't necessarily fit the portfolio that's something that's really interesting that a lot of people don't think about. And that's something that you can't really train for or study for because it's going to be so unique to whatever company that you end up working with. And that's something that you just have to learn and figure out. And the worst thing is to get months into a deal and then you know look back and be like, oh, shoot, I forgot to look at the covenants that our fund has. This is something that we can't invest in just because it doesn't meet X, Y, or Z covenant. And that's another thing that uh, founders don't realize as well is that sometimes it's nothing to do with your company. It's 100% to do with however the fund was raised and whatever were promised to the investors. And that's something that's really important to keep in mind.
0: Definitely. Thanks for sharing that. One thing we've found through our guests on the podcast and more so just throughout the Going VC program is that VC is really an apprenticeship model and you learn so much by being on the job. would also be curious to hear What major skills, either from your degree in economics at Duke or your previous roles, particularly at GM, what major skills you found to be transferable over to your current role?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's so funny. I would love to say that being an economics major has helped me succeed in my career, but I don't know that there was any sort of direct linkage between the two. Economics is a great thing to study because it teaches you the intersection between consumer behavior and psychology with quantifiable and and theoretical models. That's something that's really beneficial because it it teaches you to think about why people do the things that they do, and that's something that's been really helpful in venture capital is understanding why a founder might go down a certain avenue or why consumers might be more interested in purchasing a certain product or service. But what's really been helpful is my experience at General Motors. Being in that incubator team has helped me realize which contracts may be harder to sign. If a founder comes to us and says, we're going to get all of these contracts signed by the end of the year, I have a much better understanding of how realistic that assumption is. I understand how difficult it is to build certain things up and even how little it is. And I think that I, I understand so many marketplaces differently. I think that being a GM, I definitely understand the, the manufacturing space really well. But since I worked in the telematics space, I also really understand software and technology, which is really helpful. And then being in the incentive space, I really understand the flow of finances and understanding when certain things are recognized and how certain things are recognized and what certain contracts look like and how to encourage buyers to, to demonstrate certain behaviors. And Those are all really important things when thinking about a business that we're going to invest in from a very macro point of view. And in terms of thinking about the job on a very micro point of view, just working at General Motors and having to manage four different jobs in three and a half years, I had to learn how to learn quickly. And that's something that's so important. When you're working in venture capital, you'll have one meeting with a fintech company right before a meeting with a marketing company followed by an investment committee meeting where you have to think about funding in the portfolio. and You constantly have to be learning all of these new things really quickly and moving your brain and thinking from one subject to another really quickly. And I think the fact that I had to start a new job every single year when I was at GM has definitely helped me you know, learn how to get the information that I need quickly and how to be able to problem solve. That's a huge skill that I've definitely taken with me. And working at such a large company, I learned how to build my network and how to make sure that I am selling myself as a person. Because I think venture capital firms, it's very important to make sure that you're working with great founders and that you're making sure to find great founders. And the way to do that is to really put yourself out there and and make sure that people, not necessarily that people know who you are, but that you come to the table and you have something to bring to the table and i think that at gm i very much had to do that because it was such a large company and and working in VC, i very much love getting on the phone and talking with founders and sharing with them the unique things that myself and my firm has to bring to the table i think those are all really important skills um, from a macro and a micro perspective that i was able to bring from my current roles my private roles
1: <laughs> one of the things that's been most interesting during this podcast is just learning about everyone's different pathways uh, and backgrounds. It's not like medicine or law where there's a really prescribed path there. Mm -hmm. Some are a little more common than others, but everyone has their own sort of unique pathway to it. And I think what's really interesting to hear in your story there is from the outside, I don't know if many people would be like, oh yeah, working for a 100 year old automotive manufacturing a company, this is going to really set me up well to uh, to work in venture capital. Lately, I don't know if that's something that that a lot of people would pick as their uh, you know top guest. It's really interesting to sort of hear that perspective. And if there's a huge variety of roles that can prepare you to be an investor later.
2: Oh, absolutely, and that's something that I, I tell people all the time because there's so many people who come to me and say. I'm in high school right now, or I'm in college right now, and my dream is to be in venture capital. What steps do I need to do to get there? What things do I need to do to get there? And my biggest advice is just do whatever you feel passionate about doing. Do whatever things that you want to do. It goes back to my previous point where I said, find the things in your role that you like doing, or find the things in your life that are really important to you, and find a job that's going to meet all of those requirements. Because I think that there is no clear path to get into venture capital. When I think about my coworkers, one of them worked in software on the actual software and computer science side. One of them came from debt. One of them came from banking. I came from corporate finance. A bunch of people came from startups themselves working in operations roles. There's so many different ways to get where you want to go that it's really important not to solidify a path for yourself too early in your career. I actually hosted a lunch and learn with the CEO of GM, Mary Barra. And something she said that was really interesting to me is, think about your career like a tree, where at the bottom of your tree, there's a lot more branches going in a variety of different directions. That's where you are when you first start your career. As you start to go down one of the branches, you end up having fewer and fewer options. that was something that was really interesting. Once you start in your career, you do have so many branches that you can go down. And it makes sense to be able to explore a bunch of those different branches and figure out what you like doing. You're going to gain valuable skills. The ends of the branches are all supported by the, the root of the tree. Being able to develop all of these different skill sets and utilize them to be able to find a career that you find interesting for yourself is going to be beneficial. There's no wrong way to get into a certain industry at all, aside from law and medicine, of course. I think that you should probably go to law school if you want to be a lawyer. When it comes to venture capital, there's so many different things that you can do, and there's so many skill sets you can gain. And I hear this all the time from people who actually work in venture is that they love different things that different people are bringing to the table it's very unique that I came from manufacturing. And so I have such a great understanding when I'm talking to a logistics or a manufacturing company versus a coworker of mine who came from banking, may have better understanding of financial regulations and fintech companies. And all of those things are really important. And you want to make sure that you're not siloing yourself too early or that you're setting a path too early for yourself, because you don't want to head down this path and feel like, 10 years or 15 years, it's not something that you wanted to do because you didn't really take time to sit back, think, explore, and and find what was important to you. There's such a difference between the things that we think we're supposed to do and the things that we actually end up doing. And I think more people need to listen to that.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I really like that tree analogy. I don't know if I've heard that one before.
2: Yeah. So, Julia, looking forward
0: into the rest of 2021, are there any major trends or sectors that really excite you or that you've taken a deep dive in?
2: Yeah, I like to think a little bit longer term. I think 2021, we thought that we would see the end of the pandemic a little bit sooner than we've actually been seeing it. The United States for one has been doing an amazing job in terms of getting vaccines to people, but globally we could all do a better job of making sure that we're, we're getting vaccines to areas where people need it, that we're still practicing social distancing, that people are masking up, things like that. I I was hoping that by the end of 2021, we would start to see uh, macro trends that were post-pandemic. But I think that those are things that we're going to see more so in 2022. And along those lines, I'm probably in the minority here in that I think that people are actually going to embrace physical experiences and physical purchases more so than than people are forecasting. People realize that they miss going in. And being able to try on certain things in person that people like going to the movies for the experience that it's great to build a home theater but there's something there's nothing like the smell of popcorn or the sticky seats or the sticky floors as you're walking to your chair and things like that and they may sound like negative things but i think that people really miss doing those things and i think that we are going to see a resurgence and we've already seen some companies like. Restoration Hardware and Lululemon really investing heavily in their physical stores and their physical presence. I love the convenience of doing things online, but that's always going to be there. But moving into just the rest of 2021, there's a number of things that we're going to see an increase in. My firm, Panoramic, we mostly invest in enterprise software. So my view is a little bit skewed more towards the B2B side. From that perspective, I do think that we're going to see an increase in cybersecurity companies doing really well, online learning companies doing really well. We've already seen a huge investment in companies like Coursera and Udemy because people are realizing that education can be conveyed online. And that I can't speak for the rest of the world, but in the United States, education is so expensive now. And if there's a a cheaper alternative to do that, then people are going to start trying and and wanting to do that. For the rest of this year, we're going to see huge increases in trends like that, huge increases in any sort of working from home problem solves, whether that be working out, actually working. We see a lot of investment in sleep because we realize that people are working harder now that they're working from home because there's no separation of work and home life. For the rest of the year, we're going to see massive increases in those sorts of investments. And overall, there's going to be a lot of net positives there from that. That's a really exciting space. I guess that was a little combo of B2B and B2C, but that's really where we're gonna see a lot of trends for the rest of just this year before we move into experiential opportunities in 2022.
1: Yeah, that sort of stuff I think is gonna be super interesting to play out. I was reading an email, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago from McKinsey, and they they were trying to model out which new behaviors will stick and which new behaviors will change. Digitization, you had almost a decade in in weeks for stuff like virtual healthcare and online grocery shopping and any sorts of things. And, and the big question, of course, is is which of these behaviors are going to be sticky and stay, and which of these are going to, going to come back? And to your point about it being pent up demand, which of these behaviors, like maybe when we reopen, you've got revenge travel, that sort of stuff. But then you fast forward two or three years out, and maybe things are going to shift a little back there. Personally, ordering groceries online. Fantastic. I was a moderate user of it before, but absolutely fantastic. Same sort of deal with telemedicine for basic things like getting a refill over a five-minute video call as opposed to having to go to the dermatologist's office and wait around. It was super fantastic experience. But then there are other things like education where, I don't know, I feel a little less confident on the stickiness of that behavior. At least from what I've read, engagement rates for online learning is just not as high as engagement rates for in-person learning. It can get a little better if you do like cohort models and you've got live classes and stuff like that versus your sort of like standard Coursera stuff. But the engagement rates there are just not as high as in-person learning. So it'll be really interesting to see how that all pans out
2: Definitely. I think that may be something where it's almost a case shape where we see the people who are attending in-person are exclusively attending in-person and this middle sort of hybrid where maybe there's some online courses, some in-person. That's going to completely eliminate as the people who are looking for cheaper alternatives to education are going strictly online. And then the people who do have the means for in-person learning are going to 100% want to be in-person. People are not going to recorded lectures anymore. I know that was a really big thing when I was in school. Attendance may be taken a little bit more as, as people realize that there is such a value for being in person. I completely agree. I've taken a number of Coursera courses during the pandemic and I find myself having to go back and re-watch lectures because I'm zoning out or I'm playing on my phone or I'm trying to get work done while I'm listening to a lecture in the background. And so I think that there's going to be a huge divergence there where some people a lot of it is going to be socioeconomic where there's going to be a greater divide in those who can afford this higher level education and those who can't. And I know that a number of online um, education platforms now are starting to offer full-time undergraduate programs, full-time MBA programs, all online, things like that. And I just think that we're really going to see two huge masses, the, the some that are all in person and the some that are all online. And I It's terrible to say, but I think a lot of it is going to be socioeconomic driven.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see how successful people can make the hybrid models because there's a lot of potential for technology there to help scale delivery of the services. I don't know if you guys have seen one of the co-founders of Masterclass has a spinoff called Outlier, and they have these incredibly well produced first year college courses like calculus, that sort of thing. And it's not meant to replace your four year degree, But I think the course in Outliers is just a few hundred dollars, which is dramatically cheaper than it would be taking it at, say, UCLA. If you can get the credit for that, maybe you can pick these certain courses that are outside of your focus and the coursework that's more important to you still do in person.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of just additional skill training, classes that might be outside what your major is, things like that. I know a number of Companies like Google even is offering courses now where you can just go online and, and take this course and become an expert search engine optimization expert and things like that. Education is gonna be a really interesting segment to pay attention to moving forward.
1: Yeah,
0: 100%. Speaking of looking into the future about trends in, in VC in general, as you all know, there's been a lot of attention on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the venture ecosystem. In the last year and it's definitely much needed we're all really familiar with the statistics on both the investor and founder side and we have some specific questions to to dive into on the topic but just to start julia would love to hear how you would score the industry on dei right now and in terms of how you think it's it's moving along and the future outlook
2: breaking it into a couple categories where it is now at on a scale of 10, I would say it's probably closer to a three or four. I can't tell you the number of meetings that I've been on where I am the only female in the meeting, whether that be internally at my company or whether that be externally meeting with founders. And, you know, that even extends to the people who reach out to me and want to learn more how I, you know, quote, broke into VC, there is a huge disparity there. And I think that that's something that is going to be changing, which definitely leads me into the the second part of that, which I think, you know, where it's, going. I think I would rate that closer to a six or a seven, that awareness is one of the first big things that needs to be done before a real change can actually happen. And I think right now, People are aware. There's a number of events going on in the country and in the world that have made people aware that this is something that's really important. That awareness is really propelling companies to want to take a more diverse look at who they're hiring. That's something that's really great, where I think we'll be in five years, probably closer to that five to six out of 10, where we'll be in 10 years, probably closer to a seven to eight out of 10. But I think that change doesn't happen overnight. And I don't think that change should happen overnight. I think that things need to be gradual. I don't think that investing in DEI just for DEI's sake is not always a good thing. Doing something just to publish an article about it online doesn't necessarily get to the root of the problem. And I think that a lot of the issues that need to be fixed are a lot bigger than just hiring someone who meets a certain criteria i think that as we see trends change over time we'll start to see improvements in dni that's something that i'm really looking forward to and i'm really excited about
0: definitely thanks for sharing that perspective on where you think the industry is at right now and how there will be incremental improvement over the long term Curious to hear if there's anything specific that you found that your firm Panoramic does to really adopt DEI values or if if you see other kind of peer firms doing it as well that you think are effective.
2: Absolutely. One of my favorite things about Panoramic is that we do have this partnership with SoftBank's Opportunity Fund where they invest in underrepresented founders. During my orientation, I had the opportunity to meet with that team and ask them questions and learn about more doing. And it's so exciting to hear the number of meetings that they have on their calendars. They spend all day talking to these underrepresented founders. And that's something that's amazing. And I love that we have dedicated capital specifically for that. And I love that it has such a huge name attached to SoftBank. Everyone around the world knows SoftBank. And that's great because that means that there's going to be more eyes on investing in underrepresented founders. I know for us, like when we're investing, there's not really a conversation about, oh, who is this founder in terms of diversity or things like that? It's okay. How many years of experience do they have? Do, you know, do they know the space really well? I've spoken to a number of people who work at funds across the country who do focus explicitly on investing in underrepresented founders. And I think that's an amazing thing to start and to do because then it makes these founders feel like they have a team of people who are going to listen to them, who are going to answer. Having that comfort is something that's so important. I have a really close colleague of mine who is starting a company which is definitely suited more so to female consumers. And so when I heard the idea immediately, I was like, wow, I totally get the need for this in the marketplace. And the feedback that she told me she had gotten from investors was, I don't understand who's going to use this. What's the point of this product? And she mentioned that the people she had been pitching this idea to were all males. That's something that really spoke to me in that if there were companies led by females, or even not led by females, but used to investing in in female-focused companies, they 100% would look at this company and say, "I, I completely understand. We've seen similar things in the marketplace. We know that this is a need having firms established that are focused on investing in certain types of people and in certain sectors, I think it just makes founders feel more comfortable that they know that they have a place to go. And that's something that's really important for anyone starting out on a venture is not starting out feeling lost or hopeless because you don't know who to go to or who would even understand.
0: I think, Julie, you made a great point about how the the anecdote of you being a woman investor and being able to recognize the value in a, a startup that had a product that catered to women that's so important and we're going to be seeing that more and more you'd mentioned to jj previously a little bit about how you think there's a, a b2b versus b2c gap in founders and investing could you touch a, a little bit on that subject as well absolutely this
2: is a conversation that I had had with someone recently about the difference between B2B and B2C, how to fix that. I think in the B2C space, it's a lot easier to come up with ideas because those are things that we are using every single day. That's why I think when you see these large growth numbers in more female startups and founding companies, a lot of it is in the B2C space because these are issues that people face every day. The issue comes more so in the B2B space where historically, Women were not working at higher up levels. You know, I think today that we're seeing a lot of improvement in that area. But when you think back to 20, 30 years, more females were not necessarily working in C level positions or were not working in executive level positions and weren't able to identify areas of difficulty in the business space. That's why I think we are seeing such a dramatic difference in B2B female founder to uh, male founder ratio than in the B2C space. And something thing that is sort of hopeful when we think about where companies are heading to today, I talked about how the CEO of General Motors is, is Mary Barra. Uh, and that's amazing. We have a female founder of a Fortune 100 automotive company. And while I was at General Motors, Divya was the CFO. We had two women in the C-suite who were running the company. And I think things like that are amazing in that in the future, we're going to see more female-led B2B companies because there are going to be more females who have experience working in those high-level positions at companies and in corporations. Right now, it's something that we just need to make ourselves aware of is that if we do see improvements in numbers of female founders getting funded, we need to take a step back is that in the B2B space? Is that in the B2C space? There's still an issue in the B2B space. And it's not something that's going to change over time. It's going to happen gradually. And we are already making steps in the right direction. But that's just something to be aware of, is that we can't just pat ourselves on the back and say, all right, we improved overall funding. When 90% of that funding is in the B2C space, then there's obviously still work that needs to be done. I think that's something that needs to be on people's radar.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also really important to think through some of the knock-on effects there. I was reading an article a few days ago about the rise of SaaS companies and how in the 1900s, America ran on oil and now America runs on the cloud. Not
2: America ran on
1: Dunkin'. No, not anymore. I don't know. Maybe somewhere in the 90s, it ran on Dunkin'. But now America runs on the cloud. And the stuff they had there, which was really interesting, but for me at least, it, it wasn't something I would have guessed. These large enterprise SaaS companies are just earning multiples way higher than everyone else. And then you're going to have a lot of knock-on impacts. If you're a founder working in B2B enterprise SaaS, and then you have your liquidity event, your IPO, or you have your acquis- acquisition, whatever, you're just going to have a lot more capital than someone you know who has a B2C exit. Because the multiples these companies are earning, are just so much higher than anything else. To your point there, if you have improvements in the top line stat, it's great. Like we tripled the number of diverse founders. We had a 50% increase in exits, that sort of thing. But I think it's really important to not let that distract from from the sort of knock-on effects.
2: Absolutely. And I love your point about thinking about the down effects of, you know, these founders potentially wanting to start funds one day and having access to capital. These giant multiples... You're right. It's going to have major downstream effects. We've seen the first pillar sort of fall where more women are getting involved in executive level positions. The second pillar is going to be more funding for females in the the B2B space. And then more female founders who do have the capital, the energy, the network, everything to create larger funds and create that really great positive feedback.
1: Yeah, 100 percent.
0: Final question, which is more of a fun one. You know, we've talked about how your background is... Is non-traditional and you've told us how particularly the skills from your different roles at GM have transferred over to VC. But I think something else that's unique about your background is you didn't have an internship or, or something else in, in the VC
2: space before your role. Absolutely. With the, the whole internship conversation, I do consider myself very fortunate that I was in school in a time where Resumes didn't need to be packed with eight or 10 different internship opportunities before your sophomore year. I was really lucky in that it wasn't normalized yet for people to even have access to internships really before their junior year. I think that I probably have a very different experience, but I still was able to end up where I am now. And something that's really important is that you can utilize whatever opportunities you've done to help propel yourself forward. And by that, I mean, you can use different experiences. And if you know how to frame them and sell it in a certain way and how to extract certain value from past experiences, you can be the guide for your own career. And so I think about myself in the path that I've taken where I spent a summer learning about capital markets in London. And that was really important because it helped me get a global view. And so for some people, it may seem like, oh, you weren't doing an internship. You were just doing a study abroad experience and traveling the world. But it helped me understand what different cultures are interested in. This afternoon, for example, I was on the phone with a founder from France, and I was much better able to understand the landscape of French markets, French banking, because I spent such a long period of time. You know, doing a summer experience that, that wasn't necessarily VC oriented, but it was travel oriented and understanding how markets operate differently outside of the United States. I think that also comes down to the individual where it's such an important skill to have to be able to learn how to sell yourself and to be able to talk about experiences that you've had in a way that answers an interviewer's question. One of the things that I always like to touch on is that, and I mentioned this before, is that I had to learn new things really quickly. If I was working on a different audit every month, I had to learn about the manufacturing space in a month, or I had to learn about warehousing and logistics in a month, or I had to learn about telemetry in a month. And I had to learn really quickly, and that's exactly what we're doing in venture. When we are picking up a bunch of different companies, we have to have a general understanding of their industry, and when you're putting together a deal, you have to be Able to learn about their business, the ins and outs of it, and be able to answer any questions that the IC may have at the drop of a hat. So that's a really transferable skill. So for people who maybe aren't able to get a venture capital internship, Every internship experience is going to be valuable. If you go into a marketing internship, you absolutely understand how to sell something. You understand if a marketing strategy is strong. You understand if the correct data is being collected. You understand if the target market is going to be big enough to realize a certain return on your investment you can really take any opportunity that you end up doing and framing it in a way that is going to help you succeed in your career. I think that's one of the coolest things about VC is when you look around, people have such different backgrounds. And so when you go into a meeting, you know that you can leverage someone else's background and experience to help answer questions and to think about things differently. One of the most interesting things that I've seen so far is that my coworker and I were working on a project and we were putting together a slide, and my slide looked completely different than his slide. It was conveying essentially the same point, but the information that was getting to that point was completely different because we came from such different backgrounds. And so we have such different frames of mind and frames of reference. And I think that that's something that's so cool about the BC industry. And that's why I encourage so many people out there. And I, I said this at the beginning, and I'm going to rehash it again, is make sure that you're gaining experiences beyond the things that you think are going to get you from point a to point b because you know i i said this in the beginning and i'm going to say it at the end again is there is no direct route to get to exactly where you want to be unless you know like we talked about earlier kind of be a doctor or a lawyer you know every experience is a valuable experience and i think that when i talk to people it's so disheartening to hear that people say oh well i don't have any relevant experience Every experience is relevant. And I think that that's so important. I almost hate the phrase relevant experience because everything you do in your life is a
1: relevant experience. I love that. I think that's a fantastic point to end on here. Real quick, favorite recent book that you've read?
2: Recent book that I've read. So I am currently in the middle of it, definitely closer to the end of it, but I really enjoyed it. It's this book called Nick. It's about the character from Great Gatsby, Nick, but before he was in Great Gatsby, I'm definitely a 1920s. Nerd. I'm definitely an F. Scott Fitzgerald nerd. I've read almost every single one of his books, and Gatsby. I've I've probably read it four or five times now. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. And so anything, it's almost like fan fiction related to Gatsby. And so for me, I was so excited to read that book, and I found it to be so interesting because it talks about such an interesting period in American history that I think sometimes gets overlooked because we we think about the Roaring Twenties, we think about the Great Depression, and then we think about World War II. But a lot of times we forget. About, you know, the, the first world war. And that's really when this is taking place. And all of the things that happened in the 1910s led into what we saw in the 1920s. And it really helped develop the, the entire world and the way that the world operates today, because it was really when we saw the rise of interconnectivity between different nations. And so for me, I love that time period. I'm a huge history nerd so i absolutely loved nick so anyone out there who hasn't read it or hasn't heard of it highly
1: recommend it nice i will definitely have to check it out
2: so i'm someone who loves sharing my my insight and and i love talking about startups and in general if there's anyone or any conversation that someone wants to have about a startup or a founder i love getting on the phone and and talking with people i love setting up time i love answering linkedin messages the reason i got into venture capital is because i really do believe that there are companies out there that are going to make lives easier that are going to make lives better and i want to be the change agent that can help make that happen for anyone listening, if you have a startup that you you truly believe in, you're truly passionate about, I would love to get on the phone and talk about it. Those aren't just empty words. I really do mean it. There's a number of people where I've you know looked through four four or five iterations of their pitch deck, um, and that's absolutely something that I love doing over spans of weeks, months, years, whatever. I love staying on and, and hearing about
1: how people progress nice that's awesome but what is the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to uh, take you up on that
2: yeah i will say i answer every single one of my linkedin messages that's definitely an easy way to get in touch with me so linkedin and email for sure
1: awesome
0: if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to subscribe to our newsletter for more venture capital research by visiting goingvc.com and consider giving us a gift by rating us and sharing the podcast with a friend until next time stay safe and stay
2: healthy